Hello, and welcome to the 181st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday, the 13th of June, 2022, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Nicholas C. Scott to the podcast to talk about the role the self-organised Cordones played in the Chilean Revolution. Nicholas is a PhD candidate in Latin American history at the University of Virginia and a specialist on the history of the role of the Cordones during the Chilean Revolution. This is part one of a three-parter, part three of which will be a Patreon-only episode. So if you like those Patreon-only episodes or creating Discord over on the Discord server, head on over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. Speaking of patrons, this week I have the new patron, Daryl Chia, to thank. Also, if you'd like to donate to the Socialist Planning Book project Donald and myself are working on, you can make your way over to the website at theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can find out all about it. Okay, enough commie grifting. Time for the interview. Okay, Nicholas, thanks for coming on the show today. You're here to talk to us. Well, I recently read one of your master's dissertations on the Cordones, and if I'm pronouncing that correctly, under a role in the Chilean Revolution. Am I right to say it's formally known as a revolution? Definitely. And I should start by saying it's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for having me on. But yeah, definitely it is. The Chilean revolution is recognized as a revolution, albeit one that was interrupted by a violent military coup three years into it. Is it the people themselves call a revolution? Like, because when I was reading your work and I was reading some stuff, mm-hmm. like some places call it a revolution and then other people talk about it as in like a parliamentary road to socialism, not a revolution moment. This is actually a great question and a great sort of starting point because it really gets to the heart of what makes the Chilean revolution unique in the history of socialist revolutions globally, right? So the proposition of Salvador Allende, who is elected president in 1970, is that he's going to place Chile on the road to socialism, and he will do so using the forms and methods of Chilean liberal democracy. So he will pursue a pluralist revolution towards the end of socialism. But he will do this by way of relying on the legislature and passing everything through legislative means. So, for example, a sort of key landmark moment is in 1971 when the Congress unanimously votes in approval of the constitutional amendment that will nationalize the country's mineral wealth. And that is then subsequently declared and still recognized this day as the sort of day of dignity in Chile, in which the both mainly the copper mining in the north, but also other mining industries as well, become the purview of the state uh, and are expropriated from the North American mining companies that owned and operated them at the time. Uh, can you tell us then about like what this basic program that they were put together then was about? Right. So there's actually a pretty good historiographical debate here, uh, whether or not, uh, and this gets to your earlier question about whether or not this is a sort of reformist government or a revolution. There are those in the historiography that argue that it was a socialist revolution. In other words, that Allende's goal was to achieve socialism during the six-year term to which he was elected. And then there are others, such as my former advisor, Peter Wynne, who sort of published a pioneering study at the period about the Yadra textile mill and its nationalization in 1971. Whereas Wynne would argue that Allende's goal was never to instantiate socialism during his term, but rather to win a popular consensus for socialism such that his successor would be elected on a platform of socialism and actually would 
achieve a full socialist transformation during their term. Now, the way Allende went about achieving this, as we've already mentioned, the sort of nationalization vote of the country's mineral wealth. But the other key sort of landmark legislative plan that Allende had for this was his restructuring of the Chilean economy. Uh, And here, Allende proposed restructuring it into a tripartite, a three-way division, the first of which would be the social property area. And this would be sort of the germ out of which a socialist economy would be born, right? Uh, According to the plan, it would be owned and operated by the state. Now, the other two areas of the economy under this plan would have been a mixed property area in which it would have been primarily owned by the state, right? A 51% controlling interest. However, the other 49% would be a private interest. And then finally, the third and final portion would have been a private property area. So, I mean, this right here should tell us that, yes, in fact, it was a revolution towards the end of socialism, and it still did include respect uh, and recognition of some form of private property that would exist. Now, that being said, that form of private property would exist at a much smaller economic level of sort of small business owners. We can think of it like that. Whereas that social property area would be as, you know, people in the day would have called it the commanding heights of the economy, right? The, such as the mineral wealth, uh, heavy industry, capital goods, things of that nature. Cool. So when you say the mixed property area were majority owned by the state, you're saying each individual firm would have, the state was, a, was the majority holder in these companies. That would have been the plan, right? Unfortunately for Allende and unfortunately for the revolution, this plan never really gets actualized. So in contrast to the unanimous vote for the country's mineral nationalization, Allende submits this plan to Congress in 1971. And almost immediately, two senators from the Christian Democrat Party submit an alternative plan. And this alternative plan is what is actually passed by the Chilean Congress, because at the time, the Chilean Congress was controlled by the opposition to Allende, right? His political coalition, known as the Popular Unity Coalition, was a minority in the Congress. And so this oppositional economic reform plan is what's passed. And the sort of goal of that plan was to put a halt to the sort of series of nationalizations or sort of state interventions into industries that had gotten underway since 1971, earlier in that year. What happens then is Allende vetoes this plan when it comes to his desk after passing the Congress. Then Congress overrides the veto. However, and here's the sticking point, is that they don't override it by a two-thirds vote in the Congress, which Allende will argue is necessary to override a presidential veto. The Congress will argue that any veto from a bill originating in their own body just necessitates a simple majority. Ultimately, both sides will dig in to this argument and produce a stalemate. And in the case of Chile and the sort of constitutional framework that exists in the country, any sort of constitutional crisis or stalemate such as this gets remanded to a higher court, a sort of constitutional tribunal. And ultimately, the plan languishes in that tribunal for the remainder of the Allende years. Now, that being said, workers see the proposed social property area and they see events such as I referenced earlier with the nationalization of the outer textile mill as a green light to begin pursuing actions that would precipitate the government's intervention and subsequent expropriation or nationalization of their factories. So for example, there was a law left on the books from the early part of the 20th century during the popular front era of Chile's governments that gave constitutional authority to the state to intervene into a private enterprise when a labor conflict had remained unresolved. 
And so what workers interpreted this as was to essentially present a petition against management, right? Which they knew essentially that management would not acquiesce to, which would then produce that labor conflict that would go unresolved. And then they would use that as evidence to go to the state and ask for the state intervention, which would be sort of carried out by the state appointing an intervener would be the English translation here to sort of manage operations locally in a given factory. That's right. Yeah. I see the term interventor all over the place. Is that the Spanish? That would be the Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're talking there gets to this, this thing we're going to get to again and again today in this discussion, which is this socialism from above versus socialism from below and this dialectical relationship we see in the Chilean experience. Before we get into the nitty gritty, maybe we should talk a little bit about, say, the 70 election and what was the coalition that got Allende the presidency? This is a great question, and it really is important that we lock this down. So Allende will run in 1970 as the figurehead or the candidate of a coalition known as the Popular Unity Coalition, which was a wide-ranging coalition of leftist parties in Chile. That being said, the two dominant parties were the socialists and the communists. Now, a quick caveat here is necessary insofar as in Chile, the socialists are to the left of the communists, and the communists are considered more on a not reformist line, but are seen as adhering to much more of a line of constitutional reform compared to, say, violent insurrection a la the Cuban revolutionary model. The socialists themselves are also a wide-ranging party with many factions internal to it. Allende himself is a member of the Socialist Party. However, he is associated with a more reformist wing that aligns much closer to the communists, whereas, say, Carlos Altimarano, who will ultimately become the head of the Socialist Party, is much more associated with the left-wing part of the Socialist Party, which, following its conference in Chilon in the late 60s, will declare itself to be an insurrectionary party or to sort of declare its alliances and solidarity with a more guerrerist line of revolutionary, a way of pursuing revolutionary goals. And so the popular unity government or popular unity coalition that comes out in 1970 is really the growth of a much longer political process that we can trace all the way back to the popular front era, which I referenced earlier, the 1930s and 1940s. Right, following the sort of outbreak and, and sort of war in Europe, the Communist International will declare the need to form popular fronts. In Chile, this will take the form of a coalitional government that is headed largely and has a hegemonic position by the Radical Party. However, it will also include the Socialists and the Communist Party. And Allende actually serves in this government as the health minister. And we can argue that, in fact, Peter Wynne argues this quite succinctly and quite eloquently in his book that Allende should be understood as dedicating the rest of his life to sort of recreating the successes of the popular unity moment. So for example, a key contribution of this this popular front moment would be the creation of CORFO, which would be the acronym from Spanish, uh, which was essentially a state-based organization designed to foster industrialization and mainly industrialization of key sectors of the economy, such as energy, mining, sugar, things of that nature. Now, if we jump forward a bit from the Popular Front era to, say, the 1950s, which will be when Allende launches his first campaign for the presidency in 1952, he will form what is referred to as the Popular Action Front, or in Spanish, the acronym would be the FRAP, 
And the FRAP is seen as the sort of immediate precursor to the popular unity. Uh, it's Allende's first attempt to sort of recreate the successes of the popular front era. But the difference being that instead of the radical party, which is a much more centrist, ideologically speaking, party, the sort of hegemonic parties will now be the workers' parties of the communists and the socialists. Allende will run again in the 1958 election, which he will just barely lose. Then following that, he will once again run in the 1964 election, once again under the FRAP banner. And the 1964 election is, is sort of important because here he is defeated handily. And the Christian Democrat Party, headed by Eduardo Frey, emerges victorious. And there's great debate as to the level of CIA involvement that took place leading up to the 1964 campaign and the sort of disinformation campaign that is waged. It's estimated that over $2 million was invested into communication networks in Chile to That's a lot sort of, at the time. it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of money, right? Even, even in by today's standards, but at the time it's a significant amount of money that is seen to sort of demonize Allende and to prevent him from winning after he had just narrowly lost previously. And so Eduardo Frey wins and the Christian Democrats win, and they sort of propose what they will call as a revolution in liberty, which was seen as a way to forestall a more violent insurrectionary revolution, which the key referent here is once again the Cuban model, the Cuban revolution from 1959. One of the key backers of the sort of Frey government and its revolution in liberty will be the U.S. government by way of the Alliance for Progress, which was started by the Kennedy administration and then continued during LBJ's administration. And this was seen as a way to channel funds for social reform or land reform efforts across Latin America as once again a way to prevent a sort of another Cuban revolution. And so in Chile, this takes the form of Frey's government launching the agrarian reform. That's actually started in the 60s. And here it's, you know, the target is the latifundio, or the great landed estate, which is what the majority of land tenure, how it existed at the time. Now, by the end of Frey's government, uh, a few things take place. One, in the late 60s, there's a massacre in the south of Chile by armed forces in Puerto Montt, which is really seen as a, a sort of death knell or, or reduces Frey to being a sort of lame duck president for the rest of his career. And also, the, while the agrarian reform is started, it is very slow to take place. It does not meet the expectation of the sort of rural laborers that are demanding land for those who work it. And so all of that is to say that the sort of revolution and liberty may raise hopes, but it does not deliver the goods. And so it pushes a majority of the electorate to perhaps seek uh, solutions in a more revolutionary manner. And it's into that context that we have the 1970 election. And Allende will reform the FRAP into the the UPE, or the Popular Unity Coalition. And here he wins by a plurality. And this is important because in Chile, the any election resulting in a plurality vote is remanded to the Congress to vote in favor of that. Now, historically, that is seen as sort of a rubber stamping vote, right? So for example, in 1958, when Alessandri defeats Allende in a plurality vote, it's all but assumed he will be confirmed president. In 1970, however, there's actually a lot of apprehension as to whether or not they will confirm Allende to be president. And here, once again, is where the actions of the U.S. government and the CIA come into play. Uh, and this is the sort of infamous track one and track two plans by the Nixon administration and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, that pursue sort of two tracks 
to destabilize the country such that Allende is not confirmed. And here I'm drawing on the work of Peter Kornblue and the National Security Archive that have done great work in gaining access and declassifying documents related to this era. And basically what happens is in between the election and the confirmation vote, there is a plan to kidnap the head of the Chilean Armed Forces, who is Rene Schneider, who is known as a strict constitutionalist, right? And so from his perspective, he would prevent any sort of intervention on the military to prevent the vote for Allende's confirmation. And so the plan was to kidnap him to both sort of destabilize the government, but also perhaps open the door for a non-constitutionalist to take power. Well, the problem is, is that the U.S. government contracts with individuals who had no idea what they were doing uh, in terms of staging and kidnapping, and things go horribly wrong, and Schneider is shot in the process. He does not die immediately. He dies a few days later as a result of the gunshot wounds. But it's hard to overstate the impact that this event has on the sort of Chilean public and the Chilean political scene, so much so that basically ranks are closed around Allende, and it is decided that he that the Congress will vote and confirm him. And did they know who was responsible for the killing of Schneider? At the time, I'm not sure that the, that information is, is widely diffuse. I'm sure that, you know, there were many that suspected involvement um, of, of the CIA and the U.S. government. Uh, but we do know, I believe now, through the work of the National Security Archive, we have a much clearer picture of, of who that is. And for any of your listeners that are interested in this, I would direct them to the Corn Blues book, The Pinochet File, which has a great breakdown of this, including reproductions of key documents. You mentioned earlier they wanted to, like the America, what was the plan again that JFK initiated the... Oh, it's the Alliance for Progress. Yeah, the Alliance for Progress plan. Like, was there any Guevarist elements in Chile at the time? So there are uh, elements that would align themselves with Guevara's sort of insurrectionary or FOCO model. The main or most popular would be the MIR, which would be the Spanish acronym, but it would be translated as the sort of revolutionary leftist movement. And this is very much an insurrectionary model that calls for a sort of radical guerrilla warfare on the part of the proletariat, on the part of the workers to overthrow the bourgeoisie and sort of institute a dictatorship of the proletariat. It is very Marxist-Leninist in this sense and Guevarist in its methods. Now, that being said, the MIR does not form part of the Popular Unity Coalition. It exists to the left of that, and it sees its role in the lead up to 1970 and then during the revolution itself as sort of pushing the government to the left. So if you were to talk about the Communist Party there, like they kind of seem to me to strike me as a kind of like a French Communist Party. Would that be a fair description of their politics? Insofar as you sort of more reformist than revolutionary? Or... Yeah, absolutely. You know, like if you look to like 1968, I think the Communist Party in France were quite a conservative force during that time period. Right. I mean, they are definitely not calling for an insurrectionary model of revolution. What they are doing is adhering to the sort of common turns party line that emerges in 1957, which the meeting of the Communist International in 1957 will authorize the national roads to socialism, which will allow communist parties throughout the globe to pursue what they perceive as the best route to reach socialism. And so in the history of Chile, the communist intellectuals and heads of the communist party believe that in a sort of state of dependent capitalism, right, this is a moment when dependency theory is the sort of key leftist intellectual framework that's circulating 
amongst these populations and individuals. Can you describe what that is? No, that's great. It's a great question. Uh, dependency theory would argue that the developed world, or what we would now call the global north or the North Atlantic, right, exists, and everyone else in the world exists in a state of dependency on that, insofar as they require goods that are manufactured or produced in the north to be imported into the south, and thus they exist in a dependent relationship to the circuits of capital and to the north. And so the solution to intellectuals in Latin America at the time is referred to as ISI, or Import Substitution Industrialization, which is precisely to invert that method and to for the state to take a very active role to subsidize and protect local industries that would then produce goods that would otherwise have been imported. And it's out of those industries that you would ideally spark a sort of wholesale industrialization along the sort of classical lines of an industrial revolution. The problem with that, however, is that by the 1950s, there's severe bottlenecks in ISI, right? There's never really an ability to get capital goods as a key sort of engine of industrialization. It remains stuck at the level, sort of intermediate level of consumer goods. So in Chile, for example, appliances, textiles, things like that is where a lot of the industry develops. That in combination with, as we've referenced, the sort of structure of land tenure means that land is not, there's no sort of agro industry that can be produced, which leads to another sort of bottleneck in the ISI model. And so for the communists and sort of communist party, the intellectuals of the communist party, they see that by this point, the way to sort of move past structures of dependency would be for Chile to regain control of its mineral wealth, right? And that's then what leads to the vote in 1971 to nationalize the country's mineral wealth and to keep all of that under the purview of the state and allow the state then to plan the economy using the profits that are generated by the mining wealth of the country. So we have these uh, popular unity coalition together. Two main parties are the socialists, which are split between a kind of a more revolutionary type of wing and then we have the more reformist wing and then we have the other big block being the communists who are essentially reformists and we've got a smattering of, of smaller parties so you would say that like it's a combination of forces which is predominantly a reformist at that moment anyway was reformist in nature but with revolutionary wings and revolutionary rhetoric was that a fair description of the up yeah, I mean, I think that that is, I mean, that is certainly a description that has been advanced by certain scholars. So, for example, Hugo Cancino Transcoso, who was actually one of the first authors to write about the concept of popular power and the cordones industriales themselves, makes this very same argument that at bottom, the Popular Unity Coalition was a sort of more reformist-minded coalition, but that relied on the discourse of Marxism-Leninism to appeal to voters, and that that discourse sort of straight-jacketed the government into a position in which it was pushed much further to the left than it had initially wanted. And then that is how Cancino Transcoso would see the sort of failures of the UP government. I think that, you know, we can argue that there were sort of reformist methods that were employed by the, the UP government insofar as they are relying on the structures of a liberal democratic state. But even if we look at the content of those reforms and the ends of those reforms, they are still very revolutionary and they are still towards a revolutionary socialist end. And so I think that 
it's safe to say that like, yes, there are reformist elements in the sort of classic reform versus revolutionary sort of division, but that's not to discount or to characterize the, the Chilean moment of the popular unity as a reformist government. I think it should very much be understood as a revolutionary moment. And especially if we adopt the perspective of a sort of bottom up approach or a revolution from below, as Peter Wynn would call it. I don't have extremely hard opinions one way or the other, but I, it feels like that it's some strange melange, if that's the right word, of these two forces, both within the government parties and even externally, as we're going to see when we talk about these cordones. Let's jump into maybe some of these cordones. Where did they, how did they spring up? Like, where did they come from? That's a great, that's a great question. And this is what really lays the center of my research uh, and what I'm pursuing in the dissertation. The Cordones Industriales would essentially be translated as the industrial belts. And so we can think about these in two ways. And I think it's perhaps instructive to start with them as a spatial or geographic category and then move to their more political organization form from 1972 to 1973. So if we step back and think about them as sectors of the city, these sectors were, we can think of them as ringing the city of Santiago along its periphery. And it is the sites of where sort of industry will develop in Santiago. Now they have their origins in sort of the transportation networks of the 19th century, which in this case would be the railroads, right? And so that is where these industries are first built because that is where the key transportation across the country would be located. Over time, then in the 1960s, there is an urban plan. It's the first intercommunal and communal here we can think of as a municipality. The Spanish word would be comuna. First intercommunal plan. And this is actually the first time that we see this word cordon industrial appear in the archive, in the Chilean archive. And it is used as a zoning designation, right? And it is used to zone specific areas of the city. In some senses, they already existed de facto as an industrial belt. But in other instances, there had been the springing up of sort of industries with pollution, runoff, things like that, that had been closer to the sitter of Santiago. Uh, and the plan on the part of urban planners in the 1960s is to move those industries to the city's periphery to sort of make for a safer living environment for the majority of those in the center of Santiago. And so the, this 1960 plan will zone these areas. And there are essentially three core industrial belts. There is one to the western side, if we're looking top down at the city of Santiago, to the western side, which would be in the areas of Cerrillos Maipú. Then there is one to the north of the city, which follows the sort of main, uh, what is now the highway of Americo Vespucci Norte. And then to the sort of south or southeastern, at the time, periphery of Santiago, which would follow the main avenue of Vacuna Macena, which was a main thoroughfare north-south out of the city. It's weird when you say that, the way they pronounce, like, because that's an Irish name. It's weird. When I was in Santiago years ago, there's lots of, like, things called after Irish people randomly from the, you know, the Bolivarian Wars, or I think, or the War of Independence. Is it that right. The, the, the founding father of Chile is Bernardo O'Higgins. O'Higgins. Yeah, and exactly. you're in, like, you're an Irish guy, and, like, you know, it's just very weird, like, especially because they say McKenna, like, for us, it's McKenna. Uh, what did it, how did you pronounce it? McKenna, is it? McKenna, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's just very weird. Like, you know, I went to school, people call McKenna. I'm like, God, there's some like large industrial area. In right, God and that is actually, that's actually named after Benjamin 
Bakuno Makena, who was a key government figure in the 19th century of Chile. And really, if we trace the sort of process of urban planning all the way back to the 19th century, we could say that that individual is really the first one to design an idea of a ringed circulating transportation network around the city of Santiago, which he would argue would be functionally recreate sort of city walls in effect to protect Santiago from the sort of more uncultured or uncivilized elements that existed on the periphery. But then that that transportation network is what essentially allows for these various industrial belts that are located on the north-south axis of railroads to be connected and for the sort of products of those industries to circulate within Santiago. You know, if we think about these spaces as perhaps unique spaces that produce their own local culture, that's then what allows us to begin to see the difference between the sort of geographic space and the organizational space of the cordon. And that's really where my main intervention of the dissertation that I'm working on is coming from. So, for example, the sort of leading scholar of the cordones, Frank Gudishud, has adopted Marx's distinction between a class in itself and a class for itself to help us understand the sort of difference between space and organization. And what he would argue is that sort of spaces of the industrial belts existed in themselves. And it's not until the sort of 1972 moment that they existed for themselves when they began to create the capital C, Cordones, capital I, Industriales. And these as an organizational structure were what we could functionally think of as workers' councils that were composed of previously unionized workers, right, that already maintained positions of power within their local factory unions that came together to sort of harmonize or at least synchronize or collaborate amongst different factories in a given industrial belt. So if we step back and think about the structure of Chile's labor organization at the time, it's structured in a very traditional manner, right? It is organized from the shop floor union through industrial or trade lines ultimately coming up to a national confederation. But the consequence for this at the base, for the rank and file unions in these sectors that are you know, densely populated between much of different factories, they are structurally prevented from collaborating in an officially sanctioned way, meaning that the textile workers could not, say, collaborate with the metal workers, could not collaborate with the glass workers, etc., was this true law? Was this actually in, in law that they had to have their own separate unions or was this just the kind of general? Uh, it is. It's so coming out of the nineteen late 1920s is when we have the establishment of Chile's labor code. And of course, this is modified at various times. But one of the sort of key distinctions that is made is that it has to be within unions, have to be within the shop floor union. And every factory has to have two unions. And these two unions are broke down along the lines of obrero versus empleado. And we can think of an obrero as a blue-collar worker, what we would traditionally think of as sort of industrial proletariat. They had their own union. The empleados, on the other hand, we could think of as a more white-collar worker. These would be the sort of technicians, members of sort of management, things of that nature, the professionals in the factory, right? They had their own union. And these two were structurally prevented from having a single union, right? And then as a result of that, then you have the organization over the course of the 20th century towards only organizing along sector specific because there could be collective bargaining on behalf of sectors at the national level. And so 
the National Labor Federation, which would be known as the CUT, the Central Workers Confederation in Chile. It first emerges in the early 1950s. And finally, it's not until 1972, actually, that CUT has its first democratic elections for its leadership. So you can already sense that there is a tension between sort of national level labor leadership, or at least structural labor leadership, and rank and file workers at the level of the factories, given that it's over 20 years between the organization's founding and the ability for rank and file to elect leadership at the national level. Right. So these cordones, they first emerge in response to what conditions? Great. So in 1972 is sort of the moment that we can begin to see problems arising for the Allende government. 1971 had by and large been considered success. As we've mentioned a few times now, there's the nationalization vote that was unanimous. And it's really hard to overstate the importance of the fact that it was a unanimous decision, meaning that all sectors of the opposition agreed with Allende's proposal to nationalize the country's mineral wealth. In addition to that, the Popular Unity Coalition wins a series of off-year elections in 1971, and they do so by such a wide margin that it convinces party elites or coalition elites to eschew or reject any sort of alliance with the Christian Democrat Party, who is not official member of the opposition at that point in time, is sort of a centrist middle party that is not part of the government's coalition, but is not, say, in an alliance with the nationalists, the national party. Yet, as a result of that sort of rejection of an alliance, that will push the Christian Democrats further to the right, or at least to aligning further with the the nationalists. And finally, in 1971, through a series of laws and structural raises for workers, workers are able to have tangible improvements in their lives, in their everyday lives. So for example, Peter Wynn uncovered that in 1971, workers were able to, the majority of Chileans and workers were able to afford to purchase bedding sheets for the first time in their lives. Bedding sheets were not a common thing prior to this point for the majority of Chileans. It was seen as much more of an elite marker. And so, you know, things like that, as well as, say, Allende's reform that would guarantee every child in Chile milk, daily milk for nutritional benefits. You know, these were tangible everyday benefits that those who had voted for the popular unity and even those who may not have, such as the Christian Democrats, to begin to support the Allende government. Why were the opposition, why, why were they in favor of nationalization? You know, the, it's a great question. I think that perhaps we could say that the sort of idea of dependency theory was so diffuse across Latin America at this time that it is considered, even if They did not understand it in, say, a Marxist vein of dependency and capital. They nevertheless saw the profits of mining, which were great, not staying in Chile and instead enriching North American companies such as Anaconda or Kinnikot, which were the two copper mining companies that control the majority of copper production in Chile. Also, then you, you you have the idea of, you know, if you are thinking on a right wing side, right, the idea of nationalism is important here. So the, the idea that Chile is a sovereign nation unto itself and thus should have control over its own natural resources, you could see how a sort of rightist interpretation of that would emerge. So you, so you had like the, basically the domestic bourgeoisie wanting this to be done. It's, it would seem to be a benefit to the domestic bourgeoisie. 
Right, because in their minds, right, that they would essentially their own economic elites would benefit from this because they would simply replace North American business elites as the sort of controlling stake in that, or at least they would hope to do so. The, the sort yeah. of second article of the nationalization vote gave the state that ability to do so, which would then prevent sort of private elites from gaining that. Or, you know, if even the second order effect of the profit staying within the country. And so the, the that spending is done within country, more business for those domestic. Right. And, and, and you can think of secondary and tertiary industries that would spring up necessary to produce the materials for mining and all the sort of required elements to carry out a mining operation would ultimately benefit other sectors of the business elite as well. So the back to the Cordones then. Yeah, so in 1972, then, sort of cracks begin to appear. If we could say that by 1971, the sort of Keynesian economic policies that allowed people to, you know, buy sheets for the first time in their life, papered over the sort of sectarian differences of communists, socialists, and other factions of the governing coalition. By 1972, inflation is beginning to rise, right, which was the sort of historical enemy of the Chilean economy for the majority of the 20th century, going all the way back to that popular front era, right, that the majority of Chilean governments were attempt economically to control inflation, right? And so from the perspective of those that subscribe to dependency theory, the cause of inflation was Chile's dependence on more developed, more capitalist nations. However, right, we now know due to a series of declassified documents that a lot of the inflationary pressures that were put on Chile were not a result of mismanagement by the government, but were rather a combination of factors that one prevented Chile from accessing international lines of credit, right? The Nixon administration will cut Chile off from credit from the United States. It will also successfully lobby key European lenders, specifically France, to freeze any new lines of credit and to demand payment of existing debt that had been accumulated in administrations prior to Allende's. That in combination with local opposition beginning to hoard supplies and profiteer on the black market that was emerging, all of that is combining to create inflationary pressures by 1972. And so the government's solution here is to hold two moments or two events in which they will convene as a coalition and sort of sketch out a way forward. The first will take place in early 1972 in El Arayan, and the second will take place in late May of 1972 in Locuro. And in between these two moments, the sort of division between the Socialist Party and the Communist Party will bleed out beyond the walls of the coalition into the press of Chile. So in about May 1972, you have a key figure in the Communist Party, Orlando Mias, who pins an op-ed that calls for the sort of correction of deviations in the popular unity's line, which he blames on the sort of left wing of the Socialist Party, as well as sort of workers who had broken discipline, right, and tried to push the government to the left. In other words, workers such as those from the yard or textile mill, which had not been slated for incorporation into that social property area, but nevertheless was because the workers successfully won the intervention of the state in 1971. Mias is essentially criticizing this as a sort of non-communist approach because it is not respecting the sort of party hierarchy and discipline that a communist party would like to instill on its base 
and the rank and file in organized through unions. And Mias then publishes this article in the Communist Daily El Siglo. The socialists will respond in form through their own dailies, and you begin to have a very heated polemic that will take place in the press. And we can think of this polemic as essentially being broken down into two poles, which one poll by the communists would be that the coalition needed to consolidate itself, and through the process of consolidation, it could advance along its agenda. The socialists and those to the far left of the party, such as the Mir, argued that no, the actual solution was to advance, that we needed to put our strength with the workers and the rural laborers who all this time have been picking up steam in terms of land seizures in the countryside under the agrarian reform, and that we needed to sort of form a worker-peasant alliance and put our strength with that, and that that would create the sort of conditions for a revolutionary breakthrough that would allow Allende to sort of overcome that stalemate in Congress with the opposition and push forward with the revolutionary agenda. And it's into that sort of macro political context that in 1972, in late May of 1972, on the far western edge of the city in the industrial belt of Cerrillos Maipu, you have a few factories that have gone on strike. Namely, it is an aluminum plant, El Mono, as well as the Perlac bottling or canning company that also go on strike. Now, both of these factories had been on strike in the same area, but sort of unbeknownst to one another. And the two leaders, two union presidents of the factory, the Operero's Union, the Industrial Union, go to the labor ministry one day to seize the labor ministry and use that seizure as a way to demand the state's intervention into their factories, which are on strike. This sort of happenstance or serendipitous meeting on the doors of the labor ministry is really what sets in motion the birth of the first Cordon Industrial. And it's worth mentioning that they are successful. They do successfully seize the labor ministry. They use chair office chairs to block the elevators and essentially paralyze an entire government building and shut the ministry's operations down. This in turn will spark the then labor minister, Mira Baltra, who was Chile's first female labor minister. In fact, Baltra just passed away last week the age of 90. Not only was she the first female labor minister, but she was also the first female member of Allende's government. And so Baltra will agree to visit the workers at their factories in the coming days. Now she does. She goes to the factories along with a representative from the CUT, the National Labor Federation, as well as other sort of technicians we could think of from the labor ministry to sort of carry out a study of the factories. They arrive at the Perlac factory. And they are greeted at the gates of the factory by Santos Romeo, who was the president of the factory's union, as well as other union members that are eager to see Baltra and welcome her into the factory. But they specifically say that the representative from the CUT is not allowed. And here we get back to that tension between the sort of national labor leadership and the base, because the reason that they say that he is not allowed to come into the factory it's because he had never once stepped foot in their factory prior to that moment, despite the fact that the workers had been alleging sabotage by management and an industrial slowdown to reduce output and reduce production, which in this case was a series of soups that were popular. We mentioned earlier the sort of reform that Allende passes for milk, guaranteeing milk. Another aspect of his sort of nutritional plan is to create a sort of range of more affordable products. And Perlac is tasked with soups 
that would be more affordable for everyday Chileans that would have nutritional value that they would not otherwise have access to. The workers alleged that the management had been sabotaging machinery, not running machines at full capacity, and thus reducing the output. you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.